Good morning and welcome to Gateway Online. Now, before we jump in today, I want you to see something. Give me some of that. Complete abandon, utter delight, in other words, joy. Those were my nephew's children. Did you know there are loads of these videos on YouTube? Diane showed me this the other day. You can search baby laughter and you'll get pages of these and I defy you to watch one of them and not laugh. And do it tonight, by the way, because we all need some joy in our lives, always, but maybe especially right now. So for the next nine weeks, we're gonna be in pursuit of that together at Gateway. We'll be investigating the New Testament book of Philippians, which is a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to a group of Christians in whom he delighted. And in that investigation, we'll discover some priceless secrets about stubborn joy. Joy that is independent of circumstances, that's tenacious and life-giving. Stubborn joy. Now, before we start, let me give you a definition of joy. Those of you who are part of Gateway, you have a subscription to Right Now Media. And when you have 15 minutes, go look up John Piper's series called Jesus and the Journey to Joy and just watch the first episode. We're going to steal his definition here, but he does a more thorough job of walking through it. Piper offers this. Joy, as Paul uses it in his letters, i.e. Christian joy, is, quote, a good feeling in the soul produced by the Holy Spirit as he causes us to see the beauty of Christ in the word and in the world. There are five different component parts to this definition. First, joy is a good feeling. It's not some spiritual idea. This is something we want, as much of it as we can get. But we're not in control of it because we're not in control of our emotions. Secondly, it's in the soul. It's in the immaterial part of who we are. It's not in our body. It's not in our thinking. Joy is in the soul and it's produced by the Holy Spirit. In fact, in another one of Paul's letters, he calls it a fruit of the Holy Spirit. It grows out of our relationship with God. And joy focuses us on the beauty of Christ. As that beauty is displayed in the Word and in the world. Okay, that's our target. Let's go find it. And I'm so glad that you're here and that you'll be joining us on this journey of discovery of stubborn joy. Stubborn joy. Paul uses the word joy and its relatives like rejoice 14 times in his short letter to the Philippians. He's got a lot to tell us. Now to kick the series off right, we need to set up our discussions of Paul's letter. This is introductory material and it may be less dynamic than some of the rest of our discussions, but this will set up the table nicely for us. So to get us ready, we need to briefly look at the context of the letter we'll be reading. And that means the ancient city of Philippi itself and also the larger Roman Empire. After all, it was a pretty epic civilization. And we're also going to look at how the church itself got started, the church in Philippi. Again, today is mostly about background, but it sets up everything we'll be discussing, so don't snooze on this information. At the very end today, we'll hear three hints that point us toward stubborn joy. That was the fourth thing we're going to do, not four hints. So Philippi. It's located in northeastern Greece. It was already ancient by the time Paul got there. In fact, in 356 BC, 
Philip II, who was the father of Alexander the Great, took over the city, named it after himself, hence Philippi. And Philip eventually established it as a military stronghold, plus it was one of the stops on a significant trade route across Asia, so it was a fairly important city. It eventually became part of the Roman Empire in about 166 BC when Rome defeated the Persians at a famous battle in the area. So check out this map. Now take a moment to find Philippi in the upper left-hand corner of the map. You'll notice the red line on the map. This represents Paul's travel itinerary for his second missionary journey. All right, at the time of Paul's visit, about 49 AD, the people of Philippi were both Romans and Greeks. They spoke predominantly Greek, even though Latin was the official language. It was a prosperous Roman colony, which meant that the citizens of Philippi were citizens of Rome itself. And to understand how important that was, we've got to look at the influence of the great Roman Empire. So, Rome. With its reign, the Roman Empire brought a certain degree of social stability throughout the region. Cities tended to do fairly well, since they were not having to constantly fend off warring neighbors. Also, the empire introduced a widespread reliance on a real codified system of laws. This wasn't the first system of laws, but it was the most universal application of law by far up to this point in history. Maybe most significant of all, the empire brought large-scale infrastructural improvements, including an elaborate road system that enhanced regional trade. Now, travel was certainly not easy, but it was possible, and people even did it in small groups. This entire social construction came to be known as the Pax Romana, or the Peace of Rome. But we shouldn't be fooled into imagining that this was some kind of ancient, ideal, global society. Pastor and author Leith Anderson is right when he says, and I'm going to quote Leith Anderson here, he says, Rome was a pagan place where Christian values were little known or honored, where corruption was pervasive in business, where morality was at an historic low, where divorce was common to the point that marriage was little known. In fact, the Pax Romana really referred to large-scale regional peace that Rome established, but individuals often didn't fare well under the rule of Roman law, especially those who weren't Roman citizens. And if you weren't born in the city of Rome itself, citizenship was somewhat hard to come by. So it was remarkable and powerful to be able to claim Roman citizenship throughout the empire. Remember that when you hear our story in a minute. Now, citizenship was granted to all who served as a soldier in one of the Rome's legions and to those who did some special work for the empire, as examples. But the rank-and-file resident of much of Rome's territory didn't enjoy the benefits of Roman citizenship. So let me read more of Leith Anderson's description because he reminds us of the harsh realities of life in the ancient world. And again, this is just a picture of the world into which the Apostle Paul uh, brought the gospel to Philippi. So hear this. It was a dirty and a filthy place riddled with disease and epidemics. Life expectancy was less than half of what it is in the United States today. There were few families who had both parents and few parents ever saw all of their children grow to adulthood. Because medical procedures were primitive, germ theory had not yet been invented, and no one knew about soap, infection was common. Abortion was common and a primary method of birth control was selective infanticide. They would determine the gender of the child at birth, keep the male babies, and take the female babies either down to the seashore or out to the forest and leave them to die of exposure. 
This caused enormous social upheaval in the empire because there was a huge disequilibrium between the number of males and females. In other words, in short, it was a harsh world in which to live. I said earlier that cities tended to do well under Roman rule. Well, we should qualify that by saying that it wasn't unusual for epidemics to sweep through cities, sometimes killing up to half the population. So imagine that when you're tempted to complain about our stay-in-place directives. Needless to say, they didn't know enough about disease to practice social distancing. And in cases where cities were overrun by epidemics, Rome would often repopulate them with displaced and rebellious people or with retired soldiers. Think about the soup that that created. This resulted in communities where there were scores of different languages spoken and large portions of the populace who were extremely dissatisfied. Philippi was actually one of those kinds of cities. Concerning religion, the Roman Empire was a place of wildly divergent religious beliefs. This is probably because Rome was unusual for an ancient empire in its tolerance of religions. As long as the general peace wasn't disturbed and people were subject to the cult of the emperor, they were allowed to worship whatever they wished and in any manner that they wished. There really was one major exception. Rome typically did not like religions that focused on gathering. They tolerated any kind of individual worshipers, but they didn't like gatherings, especially large ones. Rome was especially sensitive to the potential for rebellion, so religious gatherings represented too much of a risk to the Roman establishment. Interestingly, many historians have theorized that this is the major problem that Christianity faced. Not its belief system, but its community life. And any disturbance of the peace, supposed or real, was dealt with swiftly, cruelly, and unsympathetically. Okay, if we zoom up to the 10,000-foot level, and look at Roman influence, we can see that at its best, Rome imagined itself as the world's protector, providing Pax Romana wherever it went. But if we look at it from a different vantage point, we can see why the world around it sometimes thought of Rome as uh, raping the world for its own benefit and pleasure. It all depended on what lens you looked through. Finally, it should be noted that Rome worshiped beauty youth, and strength. It had a decidedly unsympathetic view toward weakness. There were no disability regulations in the Roman Empire. It was into this world that the Apostle Paul made three significant missionary journeys, and on his second journey into this world, he went to Philippi and he introduced them to the story of a servant savior and a crucified God. Specifically, he presented a Jewish Messiah who had been crucified under the authority of Rome itself. So you can see why his good news was often received with confusion and even disdain. All right, now let's look at the founding of the church in Philippi. Let's hear the story from Luke's account in Acts chapter 16. By the way, Luke was probably an eyewitness to all of these events. Paul and his companions traveled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. When they came to the border of Mysia, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of God wouldn't allow them. So they passed by Mysia and went down to Troas. During the night, 
Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia, standing and begging him, Come over to Macedonia and help us. After Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. From Troas we put out to sea and sailed straight to Samothrace, and the next day on to Neapolis. From there we traveled to Philippi, a Roman colony in the leading city of that district of Macedonia, and we stayed there several days. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. Wow. That's how it began. And this is actually a remarkable story of God's direction, isn't it? You know, God offers direction in many ways, many different ways. Here we see that he pressed on the missionaries not to preach in Asia. We don't know if this was the press of circumstances or if God simply didn't give them a sense of peace about going to Asia. God has caused both of those things in my life to communicate with me. Then Paul has a dream about a man from Macedonia or Greece inviting him to come preach there. Now, I don't know if you've had the experience of a God-inspired dream, but it's a powerful experience. And Paul obeys. Once he's in Philippi, Paul does what he often did. He found a meeting place of God-fearers. Usually this was a synagogue, but there may not have been a synagogue at Philippi. So Paul hears about a regular gathering of God-fearers down by the river. He goes to check it out one Sabbath, and he meets Lydia. Lydia is a wealthy businesswoman who has a sensitive heart, and eventually she and her whole household hear the message about Jesus, and they're baptized. Once, when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and the rest of us, shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept us up for many days. Finally, Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and said to the spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the spirit left her. When her owners realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, these men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. The Greek word for the spirit in the slave woman is literally pythona. Pythona is often translated divination or future-telling. The python, interestingly, was the symbol of the god Apollo, which was a highly influential god in Greek and Roman society. No military leader, for example, would think of going to battle without consulting someone possessed of a pythona. The really interesting thing to me is that this woman seems to see the true nature of Paul's ministry, right? These men are servants of the Most High God, she screams. But this term... Most High God 
was also commonly used for many of the Greek and Roman gods. In other words, this would have just been very confusing to the audience and frankly, very, very weird. Try to imagine all this happening in this scene. So Paul rebukes this spirit and it leaves. The woman is changed. She's set free. I don't know about you, but he's got my attention. And yet things don't go well. Since the spirit is gone, so is the money that this woman's handlers make off of her. She's no longer tormented, but who cares? Because the income is gone. So the woman's handlers drag Paul and Silas in front of a crowd in the Agora or the marketplace. By the way, the Agora in Philippi has been uncovered by archaeologists. And a tribunal is convened so that a civil case can be brought. And the handlers take expert advantage of the situation politically by noting that Paul and Silas are irreligious Jews. Now, this is shorthand for they don't worship the emperor, they subscribe to one of those weird gathering religions, and they represent trouble. And not surprisingly, the missionaries are found guilty and are beaten and put in prison and guarded with the most intense security available. So listen to what happens next. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open, and everyone's chains came loose. The jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, Don't harm yourself. We are all here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in, and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and all his household were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole household. Right? What an incredible story. Now remember, the Philippian jailer would have probably had a hat on similar to this, Roman soldier, would have been dressed in a garb, something like this. In other words, he would have represented all of the power of Rome. Paul and Silas, beaten, bleeding, behind prison bars, singing hymns. I mean, you have two choices when you read this account. You either say, this couldn't have really happened exactly like that. I mean, I know earthquakes happen, but like that, at that exact moment, with that effect, I can't really believe that. You either have to say that, or you have to want to become a Christian again. God is amazing. You know, maybe it's me. But when the jailer says, what must I do to be saved? I think he means this question literally. The penalty for prisoner escape was the death of the guard. But Paul seizes the opportunity to give him much greater news than just how to escape his punishment. Now let's hear the end of the story. When it was daylight, the magistrates sent their officers to the jailer with the order, release those men. The jailer told Paul, the magistrates have ordered that you and Silas be released. Now you can leave. Go in peace. But Paul said to the officers, they beat us publicly 
without a trial. Even though we are Roman citizens and threw us into prison. And now, do they want to get rid of us quietly? No, let them come themselves and escort us out. The officers reported this to the magistrates, and when they heard that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, they were alarmed. They came to appease them and escorted them from the prison, requesting them to leave the city. After Paul and Silas came out of the prison, they went to Lydia's house, where they met with the brothers and sisters and encouraged them. Then they left. I want to end our time today by encouraging you to come back next week as we engage with Paul and as we earnestly take up the task of discovering stubborn joy. But before we go, let me offer three helpful hints that will set us up for some of our conversations over the next several weeks. We're going to repeat some of these hints over the next few weeks with even more explanation and color, and, and we'll add others as well. But let's kick off our search for stubborn joy today with three hints at experiencing it that spill out of this story. Number one, if we're going to experience God's joy, we're going to have to keep in mind and embrace the power of the gospel over all circumstances to change lives, including our own life. Now, when we say gospel, we mean the story of Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and great love for us. More powerful than wealth. More powerful than social and political forces. More powerful than prison bars and persecution. And knowing that sets the table for joy. Secondly, if we're going to experience God's joy, we're going to have to relax into God's sovereign movement in, through, and around our lives. We are not in control. He is. And that's really good news. Accepting that fact and relaxing into it opens the door to joy. And thirdly, this might be the most immediately practical of all. If we're going to experience God's joy, we're going to need to remember the time of our own first connections with Christ. Remember your initial experience with Christ? Verse 34 of the passage that was read for us tells us that the Philippian jailer was, quote, filled with joy because he had come to believe in God. Let's remember that day for ourselves today. Stubborn joy. This is going to be an awesome series of conversations. Let's end with prayer. Father, we recognize that joy is a work that you do in us. Your Spirit creates that in us out of your work in our lives. So today, we recognize and we surrender to your sovereign activity in us and around us and through us. You are in control of the circumstances around us. We've been powerfully reminded over the last couple of months that we are not. We also, Lord, we remember our times of connection with you now. Today, we remember the times that you've drawn us near, and we especially remember the time that you first captured our hearts. Oh, Lord, we welcome you into the rest of our day and into this week. And honestly, Lord, bless us in this journey as we try to discover a stubborn joy because we need it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.